You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome, welcome. Guys, oh, I have been avoiding this episode for a very long time. I edited the last two episodes, episode nine and eight, kind of in one big bonanza of editing and turned them into drafts and got them all ready to publish and publish them and then just started dragging my feet because I really didn't want to deal with this episode. I know I put a trigger warning at the beginning of each episode. I'm going to repeat it here with extra emphasis because there is a lot of discussion about sexual assault and rape uh, in this episode. I'm not going to get graphic or into specifics at all. Just I talk about the fact that it happened quite a bit. I talk about it quite a bit and it happened quite a bit. Those lovely dangling modifiers. Anyway, I also I think I talk about self-harm or at least I allude to it. But yes, all the trigger warning. Do please take that under advisement, I guess. I also wanted to mention, because I realize I've been forgetting to do this at the beginning of episodes, I'm taking a lot of information very heavily from Marsha Linehan's DBT manual. It's linked uh, in the description. It's linked on the website. If you ever hear me reading, and you'll know that I'm reading because I add a reverb to my voice and I sound like I'm in a bathroom, or a large, very glorious, very stately cathedral, whichever floats your boat. If I'm reading from something, it's typically from that manual. So I wanted to make sure to give proper attribution to that and let you know where you can find what I'm reading. So today, the topic is urges. <sighs> Let's define an urge, shall we? From the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the noun for urge, so an urge, is a force or impulse towards an activity or goal. The verb, like I urged you to do something, is to force or impel in an indicated direction or into motion or greater speed. I'm going to say that again because it's kind of a big deal. To force or impel in an indicated direction or into motion or greater speed. So an emotion will urge us towards certain motions or certain behaviors. On a more psychological note, here's a definition from changingminds.org. Urges are felt as a tension, often as a kind of emptiness, such as when we feel hungry or lonely, or pressure, such as to fight or run away. When we satisfy an urge, we feel the closure of fulfillment or contentment. 
guys, I felt that in my body. <laughs> like there's there's something really relieving about this definition because it, I've struggled to explain what an urge is and what my experience of an urge is. And it really is attention. That's exactly what it is. It's like if you've ever shot a rubber band at somebody, like you pull back the rubber band, you create tension. And you can feel that when you do it. You can feel tension on your fingers if you're shooting a rubber band at somebody. You can feel tension on springs. Like there's all sorts of things we can feel tension on. And that is exactly what it feels like. And then finally, from the DBT manual, the action urge is one of the parts of an emotion. And each emotion has a typical action urge. I'm going to say that again. The action urge is one of the parts of an emotion. And each emotion has a typical action urge. That's from page 199 of the DBT handbook. That's also kind of a big deal. I'm actually, <laughs> I just figured at the beginning of my episode about urges, I would talk about the definition of urges and then realize that I've never actually defined it for myself. And this is all actually making a lot of things make sense. So every emotion will elicitate, is that a, the right word? Will cause an urge. There are, uh, that is a component part of an emotion is that urges come along with it. And you can see the different urges for each emotion in emotion regulation handout six, because each emotion has a typical action urge associated with it. So the urge I'm going to be talking about is a self-destructive urge to get on dating apps and have one night stands. And to be clear, before we get any further, I'm very much sex positive. Like I'm not slut shaming. I don't think promiscuity is a thing. I don't think slut is a thing. The reason I label this as a self-destructive urge is not because of the activity itself of having sex of having one night stands. It's because of how I use the activity and why. And it's kind of analogous to the difference between somebody who, let's say, gets off work and has a couple drinks to kind of blow off some steam versus somebody who is actually incapable of functioning without drinking and who uses drinking as a way to avoid emotions or to dissociate. Like those are two very different things, even though technically both involve the process of drinking alcohol. It's the how and it's the why and it's what what I'm using in my example here, uh, what I'm using to avoid things I wish to avoid. So it's not that the sex is the problem. It's how I use sex. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And <laughs> fair warning, I am in a pretty miserable place in this episode because uh, I'm about to play for you a recording from the past. We're going to be doing some more time travel. And where are we going to, Joy? Let's find out. We are going to, I'm recording this on December 27th, and we are going back in time to November 29th of 2021, so a little under a month ago. And at that time, I was in a pretty miserable place on that particular day. And kind of the best I could do is label my thoughts as thoughts, label my judgments as judgments, and observe how my brain was doing. Uh, it's a bit of a mess. 
because I'm figuring out my (laughs) checking in with myself as I go and asking my emotions what they're trying to tell me and listening and paying attention to my body, etc. So it's a bit, it's a bit all over the place. I have a summary. And I was debating whether to put it at the beginning or whether to put it at the end. And I think I'm going to do both because it's really actually very interesting. And I thought you might enjoy it as well. I wanted to put it at the beginning to kind of give you a roadmap of where we're going to go. And then I also wanted to put it at the end as a summary of where we went. But what's really interesting and why I'm going to do it in both places is because I'm going to summarize this in two paragraphs and it is 45 minutes of me talking. And it's a great example of how how it's possible to leave a therapy appointment and have someone go, hey, did you have any epiphanies? And I can say a single sentence and they're like, you really, you like you were there for an hour and you got one thing out of it. It takes a lot of time. A lot of this kind of introspection or like, self-reflection or self-interrogation. Interrogation is a really strong word, but, you know, asking questions of myself and kind of listening and paying attention. It's very much like digging up dinosaur bones with a toothbrush. It's very slow. In any archaeological dig, you're moving more dirt than you're moving bone. And in this episode and in really any kind of inquiry like this, there's a lot of thoughts Uh, There's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of stuff that I'm sifting through that aren't the big epiphany or the kind of the aha moment, if you will. So it takes a while to get there. And I thought it was fascinating because it was so all over the place. I decided to actually try to do a summary. And as I was writing the summary, I'm like, why did it take me 45 minutes to actually articulate this? And then I remembered what I just told you. So Here is the summary. I'm going to start by going over the urge that I'm dealing with, the urge to get on dating apps and then have one night stands with people. And I'm going to go over my history of having that urge and what it's looked like in the past, how it's impacted me and the the sort of patterns of behaviors that I developed. And then I get into what that urge does for me. All urges are typically trying to get a need met, but usually The need is targeted at things that yield short-term relief rather than addressing long-term goals. So I asked my urge what need having one-night stands was trying to meet and sat with that for a while and some thoughts came up, including that one-night stands were meeting my need to feel attractive, desired, and to be intimate without being vulnerable. And sitting with that, it opened up something that's unhealed, something that I need to address, which is that I feel kind of hopeless about having a future relationship. I have a lot of self-judgment for where I am, and I was having the thought that I have nothing to offer. And that thought opened up or made me realize that I have a compulsion to contribute to others as a way for compensating for my perceived lack of desirability. And I sat with that for a while and asked what that compulsion to contribute was trying to do for me. And what came up there was that it was trying to protect me from being a burden on other people because it doesn't feel okay to ask people to contribute to me. And then a bunch of shame came up because 
I have a lot of judgments about where I am right now. And I sat with that for a while and looked at the prompting interpretations for feeling shame and validated it. And it kind of settled on down. I took a break for a second. And while on break, uh, had a realization, I noticed that my urges spike when I'm not paying attention to my emotions, kind of like a toddler that I keep dismissing who finally throws a tantrum. <laughs> like, you weren't listening when my emotions were small, so how about I scream them at you by way of an urge? And this reminded me of something I discussed with one of my therapists that, oh, my self-destructive behavior is my way of communicating to myself that my pain is real. And I realized that I use one night stands as a way of dissociating so that I can relate to people without emotions. So that's great. And in the process of doing this whole thing, it kind of transformed my urge from a super urgent feeling to more just nervous energy. So I finished up by going over a quick skill to process that energy out of the body. And then I went and ran stairs and I didn't record myself running stairs because it would just be a lot of heavy breathing and swearing. Something to note before we dive into it here, I'm leaving pauses in when I'm scanning my body to demonstrate that it's not necessarily an immediate, oh, I know exactly what emotions I'm feeling and what body sensations I'm having. That's not immediate. Sometimes it takes me a while. So I left those in there to make the recording a little bit more authentic. So yes, that is the journey you're about to go on. And I will check in with you when it's done. So, bon voyage. So I'm going to get, I don't know if vulnerable is the right word, but I'm going to get something for a second here and talk about some urges I've been experiencing over the last couple of days. So some backstory that's really, I don't know if it's relevant to the urges, but uh, I figured I'd explain it to the, the listeners, you, so that you kind of knew what was going on. I was raped for the first time as an adult in 2012, and I think it was like New Year's 2015, very, very beginning of 2015, that I had been experiencing symptoms of PTSD for about six months at this point, and I got on dating apps and kind of cut a blue streak through them to be specific, I would match with people and go meet up with them almost immediately with no interest in getting to know them, in having any sort of long-term relationship or even a short-term relationship. I wanted to meet up with them, have sex, go home. And I did that a lot um, with a lot of different uh, people. And that was a hard, hard thing to break a hard, um, I don't know if addiction is the right word here. I know that sex addiction is a, a legit thing. I think for me, it was a coping mechanism similar to self-harm in so much as it met a short-term, it met a long-term need in the short-term. <laughs> like it did something for me immediately, but didn't actually address a deeper problem. And one of the things that I realized was really important in all of this was being able to leave at the end because my first rape in 2012, I was visiting somebody 
you know, I'd flown in, didn't have a way to leave, really. An accessible way to leave, I think is more accurate. Like I didn't have any money. Um, I didn't have a smartphone yet. So it was, I felt stuck. That was my interpretation of my experience. I couldn't think of any alternatives. So I stayed. And in having these interactions with people, you know, several years later, um, back in 2015 and 16 and 17, um, that was one of the lovely things about meeting up with somebody, having a one night stand was that I got to leave at the end and it, it met that need. It was kind of like a controlled reliving, if you will. This is what I was getting out of it. Being able to put myself back in that situation in a way that I thought was safe and getting to change the outcome. Now, was it actually objectively safe? You know, actually, at the beginning it was, and then it was not, but I developed this habit. And that's kind of how I related to people that I was attracted to, or I don't even know if attraction was necessary at that point. I created this habit, ways of relating, that became very, very challenging to break. It was easier for me to have sex immediately upon meeting somebody because it didn't require really any vulnerability on my part. It allowed me to get what I wanted rapidly and then get out. And I was really super transparent about it with all my partners that I didn't want to, you know, this isn't like a wine and dine sort of situation. I didn't want to go out to dinner or go for drinks. It was, hey, can I come to your place or can we go to a hotel and then have sex? And then I'll leave and I'm not interested in seeing you again. Yeah, it, it, it met a need for me. Um, and I, I th think I did it in as ethical a way as possible in being super transparent and upfront about what I was looking for and what I was not looking for. <sighs> but yes, I developed this pattern. And even more recently, like it, there was kind of a, a batch um, during a two-year period when it happened a lot, when I would match with people on Tinder and then, or you know, whatever dating app, and then go meet with them and have sex with them, and then leave and not want to communicate with them again. And then I stopped, was doing stuff in therapy and trying to develop a more healthy way of relating to people that was more in keeping with kind of my long-term goals for my life that I actually wanted to have a relationship and I wanted to to relate on a more intimate level, like emotionally. And then of course I met my my former partner and was with him for a little over two years. And since the since the breakup, I've had these urges again. And it's tricky. Because on the one hand, like getting on a dating app is not a problem. It it feels a lot more nuanced than say like self-harm it's like self-harm there's there's no nuance there you just I just don't want to be doing that anymore <laughs> whereas like I want to be able to like date meet people like chat with people online or on dating apps do those sorts of things just not the way that I had been doing it part of the problem with the way that I had been doing it is that I didn't really care all that much about my safety and after a, a couple of years of doing that, I experienced 
several more rapes and sexual assaults kind of in a row. <laughs> I had been going out with the person for a couple months. And then one night they raped me while I was sleeping. That happened with three, three different people. Yeah, it, it's a conundrum. And I began to have the belief that there's just no way to know if somebody is safe or not, if somebody is going to take um, advantage of me and assault me or not. Like, I didn't see any red flags. And to be very, very honest, uh, looking back on them, I still don't see red flags. I don't know if it's because there weren't any and they're just really, really, really good at what they do. Part of the problem with PTSD is it's like having a check engine light on all the time. And if the check engine light is broken, you stop paying attention to it. And then there's the day when something actually is wrong with your engine and you don't pay any attention to it because you're like, yeah, oh yeah, that's just, that's what the light does. So PTSD creates hypervigilance and I just stopped paying attention to it. I stopped paying attention to my gut because my gut was by and large really, really wrong. <laughs> like I would have panic attacks in the gym in the middle of the afternoon. I would have panic attacks in yoga. Like all of these situations that are objectively safe. And I had the experience that I was in mortal danger a lot of the time. I remember having a massive panic attack when on a business trip with my boss and several coworkers. I had another one at work, had a work outing where we went to a baseball game. And at the end of the game, I had this massive panic attack. And like, these are situations, again, where I'm objectively safe. And so I just stopped paying attention to my gut because I had the belief that my gut didn't know what on earth was going on. Couldn't tell you whether I was actually in danger or not in danger. So that's problematic because I think our guts are actually really intuitive and valuable sources of information. I think I was already primed not to trust my gut. And then, of course, having PTSD exacerbated it. And I, I really just stopped paying attention to signs, red flags. And I don't know that I've ever actually regained that ability. Because it was actually really disconcerting. I had a lot of distress about this with my former partner. He was not at all abusive in any way, shape or form. Actually really great about honoring my boundaries and checking in and communicating. And don't know how I did that. I don't know how I found somebody who was not abusive because I'd had so many people in a row that were. And I don't know that I changed anything or shifted anything. And that worries me. I have some concerns about that because if I don't know what I did, how I found him, I don't know how to replicate that. And that's scary because I don't want to put myself back in a situation again where I'm setting myself up for more abuse and more sexual assault. And I don't know how to avoid it. So I think that's actually one of the things that's causing or contributing to these urges is this sense of, well, what's the point? Like, you are going to get hurt either way. There's no guarantees there's no way of knowing for sure whether somebody is safe. So you might as well just 
do whatever, throw the rule book out, throw the, <laughs> like, yank the indicator lights out of the dashboard and be like, since I can't trust this check engine light, I might as well just not even bother paying attention to my gut and not even bother asking a que- the question of whether I'm safe or not. I don't think that's effective. It's kind of, I'm having the thought that it's all I have access to right now. Just because I have the thought that there's no other way doesn't make it true that there's no other way. I think there there are other ways because I have friends who know how to date people who don't abuse them. <laughs> and I have friends who have been sexually abused who know how to date people who don't abuse them. So like having PTSD from sexual trauma isn't like a life sentence to always be in relationships with people who are abusive. There's a way and I don't know what it is. And that kind of that lack of certainty or lack of knowing, I guess, is what has it feel kind of like Russian roulette is like, just go ahead and pull the trigger. Like there's no way of being able to tell what chamber the bullet's in. It's a very violent metaphor. Yeah. But the urges have been pretty strong. Because I think that, well, they do something for me. It's a way of being intimate without being vulnerable, not emotionally vulnerable, I guess. It's a way to get a couple needs met, being touched, being seen, being acknowledged, being desired, feeling attractive. Which to me, like if I'm sitting in a place of, like in, in my wise mind, which we haven't actually gotten into all that much yet, um, if you want to look it up, wise mind is a mindfulness skill, and we'll get into it in much more detail, but if you're interested in knowing what it is more now, uh, wise mind is, is on mindfulness handout three in the DBT handbook, which is linked in the description and on the website. Wise mind is basically, it's comprised of two parts, uh, thinking mind, the part of you that thinks and emotion mind, the part of you that feels. And I know that a lot of people draw it as wise mind is the intersection of the Venn diagram of those two things. And my first DBT instructor actually uh, said, throw that out. And drew the, the wise mind circle encapsulates both thinking and feeling. He's like, why would you purposefully not use some of the information that you're getting? Use all of it include all of it. Don't discount it and be like, oh, that's that's emotion mind and I don't really want to pay attention to that. Or, oh, that's thinking mind. I don't want to pay attention to that. So I love that. I love that wise mind is like, no, use every tool at your, at your disposal and validate them and ask questions. What is this emotion or this thought trying to do for me? So when I'm sitting in my, in my wise mind and not in emotion, urge, like need to get on an app, must feel attractive mind. What the thought that comes to mind is I need to work on my own acceptance of myself and how I feel about myself because, oh, yuck. Okay, I'm experiencing disgust right now and some self-judgment. I'm just aware of, I'm annoyed. I'm aware of some of the thought patterns that I've been having that were just kind of automatic about feeling a bit helpless, hopeless, really, not helpless, hopeless, about this whole relationship 
thing and feeling pretty pretty sad about how it ended with my last partner and how uh, you know I had these thoughts and hopes and wishes for our future. So I've been feeling kind of hopeless already and like not thinking I'll be able to find somebody else who will want to do like have a relationship with me and to build a life with me. And where my brain kind of automatically goes to is to a lot of self-judgment about all of the reasons why somebody wouldn't want me. It's automatic. I am mentally ill. I have two mental disorders. I live in my parents' house. I don't have a job. I'm having the thought that I don't have anything to offer anybody. I'm having the thought just because I have the thought doesn't make it true. And yes, I'm having the thought that I don't have anything to offer anybody. And over the holidays, I was hanging out with a couple of my really, really close friends and their their kiddo and just watching myself not be able to sit down like this kind of compulsion to do things, to contribute, to clean, to organize, to help. And I'm going to cry now Um, because I really want to contribute and I don't feel like right now I'm contributing to anybody or that I have anything to contribute. I'm having the thought that I don't have anything to contribute of value. Um, And I certainly have judgments around types of contribution, that there are valuable types of contribution and there are like unvaluable types, types that are like, yeah, that doesn't do anything for anybody. I certainly have the judgment that in order to be of a contribution, there has to be something you can see you know, here's the thing that was dirty and now it's clean. I'm very aware that the biggest, not the biggest, but some of the most significant contributions that people have made to me have been things you can't see. Like my closest friends that I chat with regularly are incredibly validating and supportive and funny. And I feel very seen and understood. And that is incredibly valuable. You can't put a price tag on that. Like there really is, there's no amount of money that I could pay somebody that would have someone show up the way my friends do. So clearly they're contributing to me in non-tactile ways and I value those ways. And I am having the judgment that the ways in which I contribute doesn't count unless it's tactile. And if I ask that judgment what it's trying to do for me, I think it's trying to make sure I'm not taking advantage of people because I'm in a position right now where I, I kind of feel like I'm a leech. I'm having a thought that I'm a leech. I'm just taking a lot without giving back. And I don't want to create an uneven relationship with any of my friends. So I Because I have that concern, I'm overcompensating really, really strongly. So what there is to do there is to check the facts. And (laughs) the friend that I spent Thanksgiving with, he actually checked the facts first. And I kind of blew him off. He was noticing how much I was doing around the house to help. And he was like, you know, we actually love having you here. 
Like we enjoy your company. You don't have to do things. We just like you. And uh, I am having emotions come up. There are tears. So what is that? Uh, sadness, I think. Um, just feels really vulnerable. I guess I'm having the thought that I, I don't believe that. Um, I don't believe that just my company is enough. And I've been watching, actually noticing this. A friend of mine got a car and it kind of bummed me out because for a while I got to serve them by driving them places. And I hadn't realized how kind of dependent I was on that as a way of contributing to them. Like I've been having the thought that I'm a bad friend ever since they got a car. Someone getting a car has no basis on the quality of my friendship. So checking the facts there. Yeah, I'm just, I'm very concerned right now that I'm not contributing to people, to the people that I care about. And so I am kind of overcompensating. And I think that's another reason that the urges are really strong to get back on dating apps because it doesn't feel okay to ask people to contribute to me. Like my parents are already letting me stay here and supporting me in that way. It doesn't feel okay to ask for them to contribute in other ways. And yeah, I'm having the thought that it's not okay to ask for people to support me right now. And so the dating app one night stand thing is a way in which I can have a need met without really having to give much back, which sounds really selfish, which is why it's really important to me. It had been in those circumstances to be really transparent about what it was and what it wasn't because I didn't want to lead anybody, lead anybody on. I still make sure that they are fulfilled I certainly am not in the kind of the typical ways um, that we measure fulfillment in sexual relationships, but I do get something out of it that's not orgasms. I get control. I get to leave at the end of the night. I get to dictate the terms of the relationship, however short that it is. I don't have to do any emotional labor in these interactions. I don't have to take care of them. I don't have to validate or any of this other stuff. It can be strictly physical and then I can leave. And so that does give me something. So I'm now having the thought that I've been using contribution as a, um, what's the word? Transaction. Like even with my friends, I've been transacting, feeling like, or having the thought that I need to contribute a, a certain amount before I can like have so much money in the bank, if you will, before I can take anything. I'm having the thought that it's wrong to take anything, to take up space, especially since the breakup, because I kind of feel like I'm having the thought that I am just this morass of negativity and that it's, it's not fun to be around me right now. I certainly am not having fun being around me right now. So I'm having the thought that I need to make up for that when I'm talking with friends or spending time with them. This is not effective. Like as I'm saying all of these things out loud and actually describing the facts of what I'm doing and the thoughts that I'm having, it doesn't feel great. 
because that's not the sort of relationship that I want to have with the people that I love and that I care about. And I know that it's not the sort of relationship they have with me, which is why, I mean, it's one of the reasons why we're friends. I'm friends with the people that I'm friends with is because there is a deeper level of connection and understanding and validation and kind of int- emotional intimacy and understanding and a, an honesty. And I know this is not how I would want them to show up. And it's not how I want to be showing up. Uh, fuck. This doesn't feel good. Is it shame? I think there's some shame there. Like I'm not liking the way I'm showing up. I'm not liking this behavior. It feels bad. It feels like I'm bad, which I think, yes, that is shame. So let's talk about shame for a second. Um, I'm looking at the emotion regulation handout six, which is that big ass one that lists all the kind of the major emotions. And shame is on uh, page nine out of 10 on emotion regulation handout six. I don't think there's any prompting events for feeling shame. I think it's my interpretations. So some interpretations of events that can prompt shame are believing that others will reject you, judging yourself to be inferior, not good enough, not as good as others, self-invalidation, comparing yourself to others and thinking you're a loser. These are interpretations again. Believing you're unlovable. Ah, Thinking you're bad, immoral, or wrong. Thinking you are defective. Thinking you're a bad person or a failure. Believing your body or body part is too big, too small, or ugly. Thinking you've not lived up to others' expectations of you. Thinking that your behavior, thoughts, or feelings are silly or stupid. Biological changes and experiences of shame include pain in the pit of your stomach, a sense of dread, wanting to shrink down or disappear, wanting to hide or cover your face and body. (sighs) Expressions and actions of shame or urges include hiding behavior, hiding behavior or a characteristic of yourself from other people, avoiding the person you've harmed, avoiding people who've criticized you, avoiding yourself, withdrawing, covering the face, bowing your head, groveling, appeasing, saying you're sorry over and over again, Looking down and away from others, sinking back, slumped with rigid posture, halting speech, lowering volume while talking. Okay, so yes. So I've clearly been experiencing a lot of shame since the breakup because none of this is, I'm not proud of any of this. Um, None of this is the way I wanted my life to go. I wanted to have a job that I enjoyed, contributing in a way that was actually useful, which is what I was doing for my former partner with his small business. I wanted to have a partner and a a home that we were building together and a life we were building together. Um, And clearly I'm having the thought that in the absence of that, I am less than, I am a single 38-year-old 38-year-old with mental illness who's living in her parents' guest bedroom. And I have a lot of judgment around that. Like, those are things, even though those are the facts, those are clearly things that I think 
I judge and I expect to be judged for, and certainly the the fact that I didn't choose any of this also feels I'm having the thought that that warrants judgment too. Like I couldn't, I'm having the thought that I couldn't even get my shit together to keep my relationship going. And that I'm having the thought that having a mental illness will preclude me from finding a partner who will understand and will want me. And when I check the facts on that, and just a reminder of checking the facts is an emotion regulation skill and the steps on how to do that as I'm flipping through my book here. Um, It's uh, emotion regulation handout eight in the DBT manual. Checking the facts, sitting here with my wise mind and looking at the whole thing. It was a mismatch of needs and skills in terms of what I needed and what his skill level was. Like he doesn't have a lot of knowledge or understanding about mental illness and he doesn't have a lot of skill level, a high skill level for in the areas that I had kind of serious needs. And it was my behavior that was the problem, not my mental illness. The, there were things self-harm and whatnot that uh, he wasn't okay with. And I still have the thought that having a mental illness will mean that no one will want to be in a relationship with me. And of course, if, you know, I was talking to a friend who was mentally ill who said the same thing, I would say something to the effect of, okay, totally understand having that thought because there's a lot of messaging we get about what it means to be a good partner. There's a lot of messaging we get around mental illness and disabilities. Uh, So it makes sense that we, you know, this hypothetical friend um, would have those concerns and it's a mismatch and it's a matter of finding somebody who matches, somebody who understands or is willing to learn and work with you around it. I mean, I've had the thought a lot lately that uh, I don't know that it's going to work for me to be with a partner who's not in therapy who also doesn't have a mental illness that they're managing because it's really challenging being with somebody who doesn't get it, um, who doesn't get it on kind of a more profound level, a more validating level, I guess, not a theoretical level. It also makes sense that I would be having these really strong urges to get back on dating apps because one of the lovely things about one night stands is that typically you don't ever get around to talking about your shit. Um, I can just be a woman who wants to have sex with somebody rather than, you know, somebody who has spent multiple weeks in a psych hospital this year who had to leave her company that she founded because of mental health issues. I don't have to explain my living situation or any of my past relationships or anything about myself. I can just be like, hey, here's a, an interaction that is purely physical. And then I get to go home. So the urge makes sense. And I think it also points to something that's not a hurt that's not being addressed. Like, because <laughs> the breakup really, really fucking sucks. Like, it really hurts. It hurts that he... Um, broke up with me (laughs) both times I was in a mental hospital 
And here, this is me being all maudlin and like a martyr and whatever, like woe is me. I'm judging myself for feeling sad, which doesn't work. I can be sad. I can feel these feelings. It just fucking sucks. And the other challenge, I've just realized another challenge with One Night Stands now is that I uh, I have a lot of scars from self-harm kind of all over my body. And I had forgotten that was a reason why it was hard to keep things strictly physical and not get into any sort of emotional anything because it's like, dude... Did you go through a meat grinder? <laughs> like, no, no, I didn't. I went through an emotional meat grinder, an emotion grinder. I don't know. But yeah, it, it, it's a challenge to keep things light when my trauma is kind of written on my body. Um, and I also have two tattoos that I didn't have the last time that I was on a dating app, one of which is actually directly related to trauma. So I have not practiced responding to somebody asking me about what that tattoo means, which I think would be a useful exercise to do. Anyway, the urges are strong today. And so what I am going to practice doing is urge surfing. And for those of you who want to know what urge surfing is, it's an observation skill. So it's mindfulness handout four in the DBT book. So I'm flipping there now. And it's a way of practicing observation and coming back to senses. Let's see here. I can find this. Ah, yes, 4A. Mindfulness handout 4A. When you're feeling an urge to do something that is impulsive, urge surf by imagining that your urges are a surfboard and you are standing on the board riding the waves. Notice any urge to avoid someone or something. Scan your entire body and notice the sensations. Where is the bo- where in the body is the urge? Um Well, I notice an urge to avoid being alone. Because initially I was thinking, well, I'm not avoiding anything. I'm, I'm, I have an urge to seek something out. And when I examine that a little bit more, no, it is an urge to avoid being alone and feeling lonely. I'm trying to avoid feeling lonely. I'm trying to avoid thoughts about feeling undesirable, being undesirable. I mean, that is... I will say this. I mean, the attention is not great, but it is attention and it is a lot of it on these dating apps. And it's kind of like eating a shit brownie. It's like on the one hand, you're getting a brownie. So that's nice. On the other hand, there's shit in it, which is less nice. (laughs) Which reminds me a lot of something our friend Kevin from The Office once said. I hear Angela's party will have double fudge brownies. It will also have Angela. So double fudge, Angela. Double fudge, Angela.
True story, Kevin. True story. Anyway, getting back on track. Where do I feel the urge in my body? I feel it kind of in the back of my throat, kind of where my throat meets my, um, my, I don't know, my torso. And feel it kind of in the pit of my stomach. Yes, very much in the pit of my stomach, all the way down at the bottom. Kind of almost where between my pelvis and my stomach. It feels like a heavy weight. Like there's a lot of a lot of pressure there. And there's dis-ease, like I'm not at ease, kind of a fluttery anxious, nervous feeling, which I notice actually accompanies a lot of my urges, both in terms of getting on dating apps, but I have that with self-harm too. There's a ner- there's a lot of really nervous energy around it. And I often feel like I want to crawl out of my skin or like go sprinting down the street or like I have to get out of here type energy. And I think It's definitely my body trying to get my attention. There's something uncomfortable. And fucking hell. God, I don't like this. So examining this and actually kind of just like wading into it a bit, it it starts to bring up like my what's underneath it. One of the things an urge does is it tends to mask a deeper issue Urges are very short term. So there's a, a long term need that's not getting met. And we go, hey, here's a thing that'll distract me for 30 seconds or today or whatever. And it doesn't work long term. It doesn't actually address what's not working long term. So I'm noticing I'm trying to avoid loneliness. I'm trying to avoid the feeling unattractive. And judging myself for my current living situation. I'm trying to avoid sitting with the reality of my life currently and certainly getting on a dating app and flirting with somebody and going and having sex is a nice uh, distraction from how much my life is not going the way I want it to right now. Oh God, it feels it in my stomach. Like it really does feel like I'm, it's not nausea. But it is, it is fluttery nerves, kind of the feeling you get right before you go out on stage to give a speech or perform. There's a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety there, a lot of fear, not wanting to actually look at my current life situation, what my life look like, looks like right now. I don't like it. And clearly I have been avoiding it. Because I'm unhappy. It's at this point that I took a little break. And I don't remember what I was doing. Probably folding clothes or something. But I had an epiphany. And came back. 
to talk about it. Ugh, I just had another thought about what's motivating the self-destruction. <sighs> um, typically, it has to do with me not paying attention to or acknowledging my emotions because I use self-destruction as a way of communicating to myself and to others the degree of pain in which I find myself. Because I have experienced a lot of invalidation in my life as a child up to, well, now, just chronic, traumatic invalidation. And I'm not as skilled as I would like to be in validating myself. Like when I'm not trying, I fall back into a pattern of invalidation because that's what I'm most used to. And I've been noticing uh, that I am invalidating or not, not even invalidating, just not paying attention to uh, my sadness and my anger. And so typically my urges spike because it's a way of my body going, hey, you're not listening and you're finding a way to diminish it and make it seem like it's not a big deal. And so we're going to behave in a way that is a clear sign of needing help <laughs> that we associate with self-destruction. And certainly going and having a lot of one-night stands with people and not caring about my safety while I'm doing it and using it as basically a way of dissociating. Ah, I just had that thought. It's a method of dissociating, a way of relating to people without actually relating to people and being completely separate from my emotions while I am interacting with another human. <sighs> this is not effective. It's not effective for the life that I want because I want to, <laughs> I want to acknowledge my emotions and feel them in a healthy, productive way and communicate them to other people and have conversations about what I need and what I want and make requests and, you know, have boundaries and all of these things. And using sex as a way of dissociating is not effective. And it also, the other problem with it is that it sets me up, it creates an, a pattern of behavior because I learned how to dissociate while having sex which is not great if you want to have boundaries and be able to say no and ask for things when having sex with somebody. And I'm realizing now this was actually a big deal when I started dating my former partner is like for several months, I was constantly dissociating when we were having sex and he had to keep stopping and, and then kind of poke at me and be like, hey, are you there? Are you here? Hello? And I would have to bring myself back but it was a hard it was a hard habit to break because I set up this way of, you know, like people talk about it's really hard to quit smoking if you associate smoking with drinking coffee. And now every time you have a cup of coffee and it was that sort of thing, like sex was dissociation and I had to unlearn that. And that's really challenging. And it took a long time and it put a lot of pressure on our very early relationship. Yeah. So clearly I am not paying attention to 
what my body needs right now and what my emotions need right now. Not acknowledging my emotions. Okay, well, so the urge has kind of transmuted as I've been talking from this must do this thing, must do this thing to, oh, no, it's just kind of a bummer. And now it's just kind of residual anxious energy. And that is what we like to call in the the emotion module of DBT an echo, how an emotion kind of sticks around, an after effect, if you will. Um, like how after you go to a concert, you have ringing in your ears, even though you're not in the concert anymore. And one of the after effects of having this really strong urge is I feel really like there's anxious energy in my body. So I'm going to go take care of that right now by going and running stairs and trying to burn off some of that energy. And I did want to leave for folks who don't have access to a way to to exercise like that and or have physical limitations around being able to burn off energy really fast. If you, if you want to calm your body down in a hurry, if you're having a lot of that nervous, like, ah, fidgetiness, um, there's a tip skill. Tip skill is a distress tolerance skill, and it is in the, you guessed it, distress tolerance module of the DBT book, and it's changing your body chemistry. So I don't know if there's, like, if it's adrenaline that's coursing through my body right now that's causing that kind of butterfly-y feeling. Um, but intense exercise, which is what I'm about to go do, is one of the things that can calm your body down after it's revved up. Um, this is distress, distress tolerance handout six. Let's over-enunciate, Joy. Pace breathing is my favorite uh, in the moment with the least amount of peripheral accessories uh, distress tolerance skill because you can just do it while you're sitting wherever you are. I like box breathing. Like you inhale for five, hold for five, exhale for five, hold for five. And I want to get into a lot of these these actually in much more detail on a different uh, day, but didn't want to leave you um, if you're experiencing strong urges and need to get the energy out of your body. I didn't want to leave you without some resources to address that. It reduces extreme emotion mind fast. So yeah, I think the the paced breathing is the most accessible in terms of anybody can do it. So if you are not able to run or do an intense exercise because you have physical limitations, or if you are at work or you know have a face full of makeup and don't want to dunk your face in water or just don't have access to ice, like pace breathing is a thing you can do in front of people and they won't necessarily know that that's what you're doing. So it, uh, again, is breathing in for a given count and then holding for that same count, breathing out for the same count and holding for the same count and continuing to do it. Usually when I start, I do fives. My goal is to get to tens. So in for 10, hold for 10, out for 10, hold for 10. I'm going to um, share a couple YouTube videos of their people have made graphics 
of that you can kind of breathe along to a graphic. And because it's on YouTube, you can change the playback speed. So you can slow it down really slowly if you need to slow your breathing down or just like kind of get your body to calm down. So anyway, I'm going to go run now and get some of this energy out of my body. Okay, we are now back in the Futua, uh, December 27th, 2021. And I want to bookend this episode with a summary of the journey we just took. So this is going to be very similar to the summary you heard at the beginning. But now you've actually taken the journey with me. So let's let's sum up, shall we? I started by going over the urge I was dealing with, which is the urge to get on dating apps and have one night stands. And I talked about my history of having that urge, what it's looked like in the past and how it's impacted me, the sorts of patterns of behaviors I developed. And then I got into what those urges do for me. And I sat with it for a while and some thoughts came up. Uh, Those one night stands were meeting my need to feel attractive, desired, and allowed me to be intimate without being vulnerable. And I sat with that for a bit and it opened up something that is unhealed that I need to work on, Uh, feeling hopeless about future relationships. I have a lot of self-judgment for where I am right now in my life and have had the thought that I have nothing to offer. And that thought prompts this compulsion to contribute to others as a way of compensating for not feeling all that desirable. And I sat with that for a while and asked what that compulsion to contribute was trying to do for me. And what came up there was that it was trying to protect me from being a burden on people because it doesn't feel okay to ask people to contribute to me, which is where a lot of shame came up. And I sat with that shame for a while and looked at prompting interpretations for feeling shame, validated a bit, and then took a break. And while on break, I had a realization I noticed that my urges spike when I'm not paying attention to my emotions. And this reminded me of something I discussed with one of my therapists, that my self-destructive behavior is a way of communicating to myself that I'm actually in pain and that that pain is real and that it matters. And I realized that I was using one night stands as a way of dissociating. So that I could relate to people without emotions. Yeah, sitting with all of that kind of transformed the urge from this super urgent thing into nervous energy. So I finished up by going over some quick skills to process energy out of the body and then went off and ran stairs. And I gotta say, they still suck. <laughs> I've been doing them for like six years and they still suck. Anywho. So that sums up this episode. Uh, Thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with me as I fumble my way through all of the emotions and whatnot. Uh, I hope that hearing what the process can sound like is validating for you, that it's not this like very linear, very quick rat-a-tat sort of realization sequence. It's messy and kind of all over the place and... There's, again, a lot of, it's mostly dirt and very few dinosaur bones. So, but what a great shin dig it is. hey Because you're digging up shins. Never mind. It's not important. Uh, 
I'm going to go ahead and sign off. But I did want to mention again, if you have any questions or any topics you want to hear, if you want to see a skill being demonstrated, I want to hear your thoughts and what you want to hear. So I can better serve my listenership. Oh, God. And be super pretentious while I'm doing it. Okay. And yes, I'm just going to... There's no... I don't... I'm just going to end this super abrupt. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richard and Fidelity London Records in 1952.